Here we are again, Laura. Here we are. This is number three. Episode three. We got some special people who are coming in today. We do. We have um, four, actually. That's four guests lot. joining us today. That's it's a lot. lot. How are we going to fit them in here? We're going to squeeze on the couch we'll and we're going to pretend like we like each other. So, no, we have we have Cardinal Glenn Impatient, Jimmy. I love that guy. And his parents and one special member of his care team, actually his heart surgeon, Dr. Charles Huddleston. I am so pumped that he agreed to be a part of this. We're going to give, I think it's good to give a little background history on Jimmy because we're really not talking about his clinical stuff today. So a little background on Jimmy. He's 15 now, but back in August of 19, Jimmy was 10. He was playing in a golf tournament and he had to get off the course because he wasn't feeling good at all. And was this, it was like, was it a big golf tournament? Was this the junior PGA? It was. I, it was a big one. Um, yeah, I'm bad about all my sports stuff. But and I'm yes. not a golfer, but I know Jimmy's a pro. He is. He is. And so this was. It was a big one. It meant a lot to him. And so somehow he dug deep, went back on the course. He earned third place in the tournament. But then, you know, his parents were like, whoa, we got to get you checked out. So they traveled to Cardinal Glennon. When I say travel, it was traveling. They are from Jackson. Oh, that's that's like a couple hours away from St. Louis. Yes, Jackson, Missouri. And uh, they traveled here. And I think with the hopes that, you know, hey, we're just going to get the stomach stuff checked out and we're going to get back to life, right? Um, they came here and it was a different story. So when Jimmy got to the ER, they checked him out. And what actually, what they thought was stomach issues was actually his heart failing. And um, he was diagnosed pretty immediately with cardiomyopathy, admitted to the hospital, and told that his heart was only functioning at about a 17% capacity. Oh my goodness, poor guy. And there's a lot to his story, a whole lot clinically, a whole lot emotionally to his story that kind of filled the 103 days between when he went on the list and when he got his new heart, and he did on December 13th after a 14-hour surgery, uh, Jimmy did have his new heart. I mean, it's so this is a completely life-altering scenario for this family. I mean, they're just moving along in their day-to-day, and Jimmy's playing sports, and then he doesn't feel well, and then they come here, and they're, well, you need a new heart. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine the thoughts that go through their heads and that total loss of control that they must feel at that moment when their plan stops, and then they have this new plan that... Our amazing care team, fortunately, is there with them to help figure out their road ahead. For sure. But our guests today know this struggle very, very well. And so today's conversation is going to be more about things like communication and trust and attitude and faith. And, you know, these are all, I'm going to call them muscles that are necessary to have, right? And exercise and lean on, whether you're part of the family or whether you're part of the healthcare team. Um you're facing, you're partnering, you're moving through all of this tough stuff together. And um, this is all things that they face when they're in the hospital. So Jimmy and his parents and their surgeon really dug in to faith, attitude, trust, communication, all those things together well. And they are willing to hang out with us and talk about all that today. So and then we're also going to have some fun after we're done talking about deep stuff, right? It's not always... all serious. <laughs> no, because we thought it would be fun um, to get to know the non-clinical side of one of our super smart and talented clinicians, Dr. Huddleston. So we're going to let Jimmy put Dr. Huddleston in the hot seat, so to speak. Oh, he's going to do an interview. Yeah. I love a change of yeah, format. Yeah. And we're going to get to know uh, Dr. Huddleston a little better, so... It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Let's make some room for extra guests. Let's do it. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Joining us today, we have 15-year-old Jimmy Williams, his father, James, his mother, Shana, and Jimmy's heart transplant surgeon, Dr. Charles Huddleston. How's everybody feeling today? First first Good. time on a podcast? First time. First time, Good. yes. Well, this is our first podcast, so. It is not. Well, it's our first like podcast podcast. It's not our oh. first episode, but it's oh, our first, first podcast podcast. podcast. Okay, lying yeah. to people. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to mention from the get-go that Jimmy wrote a book after his transplant experience. I met Jimmy and his parents in the hospital somewhere 
somewhere along your time in the hospital. But honestly, your book is the reason that I chose you four to come here together today. So your book, Attitude of Grace, um, that's what it's called. And it talks so much about faith and attitude and communication. Can I, I just, I have a, I have a quick question. So you're, you're in school, Jimmy. Yep. And you wrote a book. Yeah. How, how many other people do you know that have written a book? In my school? Well, just, I mean, like in general, I mean, like you're, you're already busy as it is. Like, what's that, what's that process like? Like, are you just trying to pin a chapter in between periods at school or like skipping Spanish to get some uh, thoughts down? On, like, how, how, how did you, how did you come about this idea? Well, the idea to write the book was actually basically from Cardinal Glennon. Um, I did a speaking event in February of 2020, the Heart and Soul event. And then after I did that paragraph, uh, I loved it. It was pretty cool. And so from there, Colonel Glennon let me do a Holidays Heroes speech. And after that speech, uh, me and my dad, we went around and we did little speaking events. And then we just thought there's no better way to go along with the speech if people wanted to know more about it than a book. So me and my dad would lay in bed with that little computer and we both typed down a few pages. Now, I don't really uh, remember a whole bunch of the details in the hospital. So my dad has to kind of uh, remind me a little bit about that. So He had his time frames mixed up on some stuff, so I'd help him with some of that. Just the minor details, but yeah. you, know, you guys collaborated. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's okay not to remember some of the pieces and parts, Sometimes right? it's better to not remember. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, I think that a lot of the, I'm going to call them ingredients that you talked about in the book, um, faith and attitude and communication are so relative, um, not just to the healing side of being a patient in the hospital, but um, the providing side of care, right? And, and how we go about taking care of people. And we just don't talk about that enough. So when your book talked a lot about that, um, I wanted to take the opportunity to talk with you for about how baking with those ingredients is uh, kind of helpful on both sides, right? Um, so let's get to know you a little bit better. Um, before getting sick, Jimmy, you had a life plan, right? Um, who did you want to be and what were you doing to get there? Well, I wanted to be the best golfer of all time. Well, I wanted to be a golfer, an MLB player, and a football player. Just a couple, just a couple things. Yeah, just a couple things. So, yeah, I kind of, I kind of worked my butt off at a bunch of it. I just wanted to be a superstar athlete. I guess that's, that's what my big goal was. So, I was planning on going and playing football, then going to the MLB, and then after I was too banged up to play either of those two, I'd go to the PGA when I'm older. So that was my. Uh, little six-year-old plan. So what did that look like? So, yeah. So, I mean, that's a big point of this. You're young, right? And, yeah. and you got, you got goals. So yeah. what did your day-to-day -day look like? Like what was getting up and what was your routine? Basically, me and my dad, we normally get up, we'd go to the batting cages, we'd hit balls for an hour, then we'd go field for an hour, then we'd go to the golf course, play 18, then maybe play another 9 to 18 more after lunch. And at that point, it'd be about 4.35, go home, rest a little bit, and then about 6.30, I'd go to football practice and we go practice football. So that was that was normally a day in the life. And sometimes I, I did wrestling for a little bit, but I never wanted to pursue a career in wrestling. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd cry. I'd cry before practice. I, I, I mean, I hated wrestling. wrestling. Wrestling failed. Oh my gosh. He hated it. And I, I, I can never tell my dad that I didn't want to do it. I, I was too Family embarrassed. tradition. Yeah. I was too embarrassed to say I didn't want to do it. So I kind of, I kind of powered through that. I mean, I always hated wrestling. Those like Tuesday nights when we had that rest. Oh my gosh. Hated it. So James, I hear you chiming in over there. So every father thinks that their kid's awesome, right? Yeah. But uh, tell us about Jimmy and your relationship before before you got involved with Glennon. 
Well, I mean, Jimmy's always a really good kid. He was always easy to spend time with. So, of course, I'm an older dad. I quit work when he was six just so we could be cool, hang out all day. I was going to take a trip. He didn't, you know, he's waiting for me to play after work. He said, Dad, we're going to do this, this, this after work. And I said, I got to go out of town. He said, oh, well, then tomorrow. I was like, won't be home tomorrow. It might be two or three days. And he just dropped his head and walked out. So I quit when I got back from that trip. And we played every day and every morning. We'd get up in the morning. Jimmy, what do you want to do? Let's go bat and cage or let's go play catch in the front yard or let's go to mm-hmm. the golf course. So we just really, we had all day every day and we spent every one of those days together, really. Um, yep. From the time he was about six till now and he's discovered that there's other kids and friends and it's kind of <laughs> interrupted my game plan <laughs> and I'm going to have to find something to do again. But yeah, that was kind of, it was a unique time frame for us in our life that we got to spend all that time together and we made use of it. We traveled a lot, a lot. Golf did that for us, travel baseball. So, you know, we were trying to fit all that in. That's one reason we took up wrestling family tradition we, a lot of people in my family wrestled but it's in the winter so i thought give us something to work out all day we built a wrestling room in the house that's like an antique it's still there right and uh i just remind him every once in a while dude he'll straighten up we could get back into wrestling he <laughs> says okay i'll straighten up but, uh, Shana, I'm like tired listening to them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, so, so you're you're in this house with these two lovely men and getting, very very active. Very active, men. yes. And getting sick is not in the life plan. Clearly, Absolutely I mean, not. there's a lot going on there. So, when you came to Glennon, you all probably thought, okay, he's got some stomach stuff. We're gonna go. We're gonna get this checked out. They're going to tell us what's wrong. We're going to do the thing and we're going to get back to life and back to sports and back Mm -hmm. to tournaments and back to winning and all of that. And no thought, I'm sure, when Mm -hmm. you first come here to a life altering experience. So you hear this news. You're told a diagnosis right away. Things are in motion quickly. What's going through your head? (laughs) It's tough, man. What? What? Scott, why? Why him? Why not me? Mm-hmm. Sorry, he's that. I told myself I wasn't going to cry, but I I knew better. Oh, but, well, I'll cry with you later on. Trust me. Um, Trust me. But I did feel very, very quickly that we were at the right place. Cardinal Glennon, I mean, um. They've been amazing from the from day one, um, but um, yeah, our life when we got the news. I've always said this: it was like somebody just smacked the crap out of me. You know, just it, the the wind just got knocked knocked out of me, um, and our lives completely changed. And you just have to, you know, we were prepared. I feel like we were prepared, but there's nothing like getting that news. Um, cause we didn't know what to expect. Were we going to take him home from the hospital? We didn't know. Calling our family. It's awful. Uh, not knowing. So things are happening quickly. There's lots in motion and you meet Dr. Charles Huddleston. Dr. Huddleston, you are the director of cardiothoracic surgery at SSM Health Cardinal Glennon. You graduated medical school, Vanderbilt University in, can I say, I'm going to date you, 1978, (laughs) and have over 46-ish years of experience. You've spent over 20 years in the U.S. Naval Reserves, and you're a dad with four kids of your own. Dr. Huddleston, in one word, how would you describe Jimmy Williams? You only get one. (laughs) All right. Inspiring. How sick was Jimmy? Well, he was near death. I mean, that's pretty sick. So he was requiring life support, medications, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it was a little bit um, 
difficult to look at him and think, okay, this kid's in a lot of trouble, but when we look at all of his studies, the echocardiogram that was done that showed this really terrible heart function, mm-hmm. um, it wouldn't take much for things to be tipped over the edge and we're doing CPR or something like this. I mean, it was scary. So, Jimmy, in your book, you said when you met Dr. Huddleston, I'm going to use a quote, that you immediately knew he was important, that he made the decisions and decided what would happen to you. I know somehow that my life is in his hands. Why did you think that? What, what about him or his body language or what, what made you think that? Um, I knew he was important almost by the way he talked. And they had that uh, group of nurses and doctors that would always come by and huddle around my little room. And then right when he like kind of walked into that group, everybody would stop talking and kind of listen to him. So I knew he was pretty much the main director of all that. So yeah, I knew I knew he was pretty important. I'm going down a path here. What what I'm talking about is first impressions and communication because you have them, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. and it factors into how you deal with each other, right? So James and Shana, initial impressions of Dr. Huddleston. Mm. <laughs> you always would say what? I would say serious. Very serious. Yes. His demeanor was very focused. Uh, very serious. You could tell he was contemplating every word that came out of everybody else's mouth. And that little huddles, it seemed to me like huddles, huddles, and huddles. <laughs> uh, you know, seemed like the other doctors, and I know that there's some teaching going on. Uh, I don't, we don't know the exact system, but there'd be different doctors with him at different times, twice a day. They would be things that they're reporting on, and he and Dr. Fiore too, but they would kind of sit there and listen, and you could tell they weren't saying a lot, but they were taking in every word. Mm-hmm. And then the direction come. Okay, well, let's move him to this. Let's put him on that, and blah, blah, blah. And it was, seemed matter of fact, of course, his personality and Dr. Fiore's are like quite a bit different. But, <laughs> but uh, Jimmy, you could tell early on he would really stare at Dr. Huddleston when he was saying, he was the one that he wanted moved up because he doesn't talk real loud, you know, so you can tell everybody's hanging on his words. And Jimmy would want to get up so he could hear what they're saying. And one of the doors opened and then, you know, finally he'd want to get closer because he wanted to make sure he heard what Dr. Huddleston was saying. So they put him in a wheelchair. He said, I want to be put in a wheelchair so he could hear him talk. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Huddleston, I, I know you, you get you get a lot of chances to to meet patients and, and families. Can you can you kind of tell us what what that process is like or what, what that's like what that's like for you? Um kind of like I mean, do you do you is it forgive me, but is it is it kind of like speed dating where you get like a little bit of time here and a little bit of time there, or do you have much time to like get to build up some rapport with the family? Can you kind of share with us what that's like? When I I'm talking to um, like the medical students about how to present a patient. It's uh, what I envision myself doing, and that is you're telling a story about them. So I try to learn what who they are, sort of like I guess you guys are doing right now in a way. But you know, like where they're from, where they go to school, what grade they're in, who their favorite teacher is, who their what their favorite subject is in school, um, and that sort of thing. If there are other kids in the family, um, you know, you have a little bit of an idea of what folks are like just based upon where they live. I grew up in a relatively small town. It's probably a little bit bigger than uh, where you guys live. But, um, you know, people in my hometown are different from people from St. Louis, Okay, so, and I mean that in a good way, actually. (laughs) And that's the way I, you know, as I say, you kind of get a flavor for what people are like just based upon where they're from and, of course, what they do and, you know, what they're doing in school. And in Jimmy's case, there was a lot of interest in sports, obviously. So 
it was pretty easy to kind of get to know him about uh, what teams he likes and you know what he likes to play and that sort of thing. So it sounds like it's it's an important kind of part of of your relationship with with the patients and the family. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I like to learn about folks just out of my own interest, kind of to see where they're where they've come from and how in the world they got to this point. So, Jimmy, you said about that first encounter. <laughs> another quote from your book is, "He tries to figure me out." And I try to figure him out, too. And one of the things you said was, I don't want him to think that I've always been like this. He needs to know what I'm supposed to be like so he can get me back to the real me. How important was it to you that he knew who you were? Because, you know, like we've talked about, you're this kid that gets up every day and you have this thing and you do all these things, but that's not who you were presenting right? Because you're yeah. sick. You are sick, mm -hmm. sick. So he doesn't know you like that kid. He knows you like you are now. So how important was it to you that he really knows who you are? And because you want to get back to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted him to know I was a pretty good golfer. And I wanted to know as a, I was an athlete. I wasn't supposed to be like some kid just laying in a hospital bed being sick like that. And I just, I wanted him to know that I was supposed to end up better than that, not laying in that hospital bed like that. And I, yeah, that was pretty important. It wasn't like an ego thing. I think it was just like, I wanted him to know that this isn't like the real me. Like the real me is supposed to be out there on that football field, baseball field, or the golf course. So how, James and Shana, how did you guys help Jimmy out with that, right? You know, because he's sick. <laughs> he's not able to do a whole lot. So how did you guys, because I'm sure that's important to you guys as well, right? So how did you paint that picture for Dr. Huddleston, you know, to kind of show him this is this is our kid, like this is the way he's supposed to be. But as far as us helping him, man, I'm going to tell you, I wish me and her could take some credit for helping him through that process, but he helped us really. Jimmy really always had it together. Dr. Huddleston, I know I know you said that it's it's part of your interest, but like wanting to get to know the families. I mean, I I know that every circumstance can be different and some can be a lot more challenging than others. Um but how does how does that, you know, does that affect you in your work, you know, getting taking that time to getting to know the families when you know when there could be potentially different outcomes for any case or any scenario that, you know, comes, comes through our hospital that you get to deal with? Well, I'm not sure I know how to answer that question apart from, you know, knowing how to relate to people when you have to deliver bad news, for instance. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that's part of what we do when things aren't exactly like we want them to be. And, um, you know, whether to, um, sort of gently lead up to whatever it is that you're going to say or just lay it out there on the line and say, well, this is the way it is and this is what we're going to have to do to get you out of this mess. So it just kind of depends on you. You take that time to to kind of understand, you know, what would be best in right. your situation. Yeah. For you, Dr. Huddleston, you're dealing with these parents all the time, parents and patients who are experiencing quite a bit of loss of control, which manifests itself in all kinds of interesting ways, I think. And um, how do you how do you get in front of that as a caregiver, nurses, doctors who are on, I'm going to call it, sounds so cliche, the front lines, right, of dealing with all of this parental stress and loss of control. How do you get in front of that um, and keep those huge feelings that they're feeling as minimal as they can be? How... What are ways that maybe even subconsciously or consciously that you find yourself doing to um, empower your patients or parents? Like, how can you get in front of that a little bit to help minimize that as much as possible? Yeah, well, I would say it's taken me a fairly long time to figure out the best way to do that. But um, now it seems pretty easy. And that is that uh, you just tell them up front, be completely transparent about what's happening and what we plan to do about it. And this, uh, perhaps another pretty important part of it is to see what input they might have, uh, suggestions about things that we can do to make the situation better, whatever it is. I mean, if 
occasionally we'd have a parent that say, you know, when you draw his blood at five o'clock in the morning, it really does mess up our schedule. Of course, we do that so that we can have those results at the time that we're going around to check on him and so on, which is between 6.30 and 7. But do we really need it? Is it worth waking him up? Is it worth that bit of nuisance? No, probably not. Um, so at any rate, uh, those are the two main things, in my view, to help people cope with this, and that is to be completely honest about them, what's going on, and to give them some element of input or control on that they can have to further the care of the, their kid. It's funny. You say it's taken a while <laughs> to, to get to this, but how do you, how do you, like I said, I I've, I've been witness to, and I've seen a lot of loss of control in, in motion. And, um, how do you maintain grace? What do you draw from? Like in, when you are in families crisis and they are actively exhibiting crisis, how do you keep your calm or what do you draw from? Um, I don't know that I have one particular thing that um, I rely on except to say that, you know, we're doing absolutely everything we can. We're doing the best that we can. And if and when bad things happen, we'll deal with each one of those individual things that comes up, again, in the best way we can with uh, the best knowledge that we have. Absolutely. Jimmy, you said in your book, when I talk, Dr. Huddleston listens and takes in every word. I don't want any secrets. I wanted to know everything. Was that the most important thing to you? Yeah, I always wanted to know what was going on. I never wanted to uh, be caught by, like, surprise. Even, like, the IVs and everything, all the nurses would tell me to, like, you know, like, look away. When they need to, I always wanted to just, like, watch it watched it go through my arm and I, I don't know I don't know why I did that but I still do it now I just never wanted to be caught by surprise I always wanted to know what was going on and what was going to happen next I always wanted to know like uh tomorrow am I getting a new IV or is everything going to stay the same I just I I just wanted to know what was going on I'll ask James and Shana each the same question uh, Shana what was the most important thing to you when it came to communication? And then James, same question. Just being there and knowing what was going to happen next because he was in the very beginning, everything was so touch and go. Um, we both wanted to know um, what was the, the plan for the day. And I think that he probably would agree on that. We had a lot of information coming. I'll yeah. say that. And Googling it. You know, we would Google. Yeah, that's sorry, usually a mistake. Does yeah. Google make I'm a like, good doctor? I, 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 <laughs> he's probably like, stop with the Googling. Yeah. You know, no, but, you well, know, we didn't understand a lot of things that were happening. A lot of new medical know. terms hitting mm -hmm. the family. Yeah. I'll say all the nurses are the same, though. Full information, right? A lot of competent nurses, you know, in that area that we was at, they'd, they'd been down some of them roads before too. So the, all the doctors I felt like were great with trying to explain things. And sometimes you don't ask every question that you wanted to ask and they're boom, they're gone. But then, you know, at one time, I think a couple of weeks, maybe we had two nurses mm -hmm. in the room 24 hours a day, which at first we kind of thought, wow, they, they do good here. Well, that's not normal. They knew he was in a really bad spot, but so we had them to lean on too for information, you know, to explain things. So we, we learned a lot fast. In the foreword of Jimmy's book, it talks about faith being a big part of Jimmy's life from a very early age. Jimmy, I read that you were baptized when you were six and that you said, this is one of my very favorite quotes. <laughs> I want to make sure they baptize me properly. No sprinkles <laughs> or half dunks, full immersion, all of it. I know who I want to be. I want to do everything I need to live a great life when I get older. So, Jimmy, for as long as you can remember, you've, it sounds like you have believed in that something bigger than yourself is driving the boat, right? And knows the plan for your life. So, how did that kind of attitude or that belief work for your good while you were in intensive care? Did you have to draw on that? Yeah, I'd say. Um, you know, like the title Attitude of Grace, you know, I had to, I kind of had to just let God take control because, you know, 
like you said in sports, if you hit a bad golf shot, you can always do something about it. But, I mean, when you're in that hospital bed with your heart failing, you really, you, you can't, you can't do anything to make it stop failing. At least I couldn't. So, you, I, like, personally, me, I just had to let God take control. And I think one of the ways of letting that happen, I guess I just got, I would go into, like, meditation states almost, where I just sit there and I just think about golf. I just, I just, like, run through my head just hitting golf shots. Or, or ESPN. ESPN was a <laughs> lifesaver. So, 24 hours a day. 24, 24 hours, a day. hours a day was... ESPN. I'd watch the. I'd even watch the reruns. So ESPN and thinking about golf. Yeah, I. I guess that was a way that, like, God helped me through it, guide me through it like that. Yeah. You've mentioned that you don't remember a lot of pieces and parts, but was there a time that you can remember? Oh my God! Like that was really scary to you. Um. One of the main things was. I was about 10, and that's, I guess that's a weird time age for kids. So when my mom said Thor, it was about the second week I was in the hospital, she said Thor's going to come in, and I thought the uh, the <laughs> guy named Thor. Like, like the Norse was, god of yeah, lightning, like Thor. Yeah, I, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, who do these nurses think I am? Do they? <laughs> so... So I'm like that was I'm the thinking. scariest part of the whole thing. Was no, it's not scariest, but it's something that I remember. <laughs> I'm like, who, who do they think? Do they really think I'm like some six year old? I'm like, I'm not six. You know, I'm a big ten year old. So I, I thought they were gonna bring some guy, and I was just like, oh no. <laughs> and, I mean. and and they brought in the dog, and that that was because I've always remembered Thor. But then one time they did bring in clowns. <laughs> And that was horrible. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they brought in clowns, and they had this little nose thing. I know. Uh, yeah, Jimmy was, like, not. I mean, uh, they were I, cute. I, I, I was I too cool for school. Oh, yeah. You're still too cool for school. Yeah. So, Dr. Huddleston, there's a quote from Jimmy in his book that says, God holds Dr. Huddleston's hands just like Dad holds mine. So... I want to know if you personally call on something bigger than you, you know, like, I mean, we just talked to Jimmy about, he used his faith, you know, when he was struggling and kind of trying to navigate things and figure things out. So do you call on something bigger than you as you navigate each case? I mean, you have a lot of skill and obviously you rely on that, but. I would like to say that there's nothing bigger than me. <laughs> you can. So you can say it. Go ahead. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, sure. I mean, we pray. There are a couple of times in the, this whole process where, um, as a group, we pray. Uh, one is when we are doing the uh, donor retrieval. Mm-hmm. Um. We pray for the family of the donor, first of all. Um, Pray for the actual individual. And then pray for all those who are going to receive the organs. And then over the course of, uh, you know, this entire hospital stay, which was a lot of ups and downs, absolutely we call and pray to give everybody strength. I think it's a little bit, um, I wouldn't say unfair, but... You want to pray for God to make him better. Um, I don't know that if God had that power that he would make everybody better, right? So we have to pray that God gives everybody the strength to cope with whatever is going on and gives us the strength to do the right thing and to make the right decisions and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, right. Absolutely. That's good. Shana, one of Jimmy's quotes, I I got a lot of quotes. I obviously (laughs) had a big yellow highlighter going through the book. Anyway, one of Jimmy's quotes says, positive and grateful people give thanks for everything in their lives, even on the days when nothing is going right. What is the gratitude in this? How has this changed you? And what are you thankful for? Because like you said in the very beginning, there's a lot of why me 
Like, yeah. why is this happening? And this is awful. And this is terrible. And, and why? But so what's the gratitude in this? Well, we've met some pretty amazing people um, along the way that we normally wouldn't have. Um, that's the good. Um, and we also, because of this, we don't take anything for granted anymore. Um, for sure. I mean, we live every day to the fullest, I think. Um, and that's what we take away from it. James, same question. Same question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I th- we were living, you know, pretty all in <clears throat> as a family before this happened. Um, and I, and if you could take that up a notch, there's no doubt we have. We're thankful for having a, a life after that, right? There's times when you're in that room, you don't, you can't even imagine, you know, what might happen. So as a family, when we were staying in the apartment, like in between him getting an LVAD and getting the heart, we, me and Shannon would talk that what we prayed for was that Jimmy's life would be better than it ever could have been. Um, because there's, there's no treading water. So his life was either going to be better or less. And, uh, I think it's better. I, I think we're winning that. Um, and we can't do that all by ourselves. We try, but a lot of people have played a part in that. Jimmy, to layer on that. Another one of your quotes says, God never gives us more than we can handle. He must think a lot of me. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my favorites, too. So, yeah, he must. Um, What purpose have you found in all of this? How are you living? If there was a purpose behind all of this for you, how are you living in it right now, do you think? Um, I'm just trying to inspire people, you know, Uh, help people get through whatever's going on and I did a little interview yesterday and the guy said that no matter how bad you think you have it uh, somebody else has it a lot worse and I even knew that when I was in that uh hospital room with my heart failing I knew that uh down there in that cancer ward it could have been a whole lot worse and some of the stuff that they have to go through is so much worse than what I could ever imagine so someone else always has it worse than you and just to live every day, yeah, to the fullest and try to help kids that are in my situation uh, to get through it, you know? And then don't, I try not to think about it that much, you know? Just, I, uh, it was a blessing to be able to be able to come through and live this life again. So I just got to live it to the fullest. And I, I learned some valuable lessons, but I, I'm really trying to, uh, go through life and do the best that I can. Love that. Dr. Huddleston, there's a lot of hard, right? There's a lot of hard. There's a lot of difficult conversations, crucial conversations, a lot, a lot of hard that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. What makes you go home and say, today was a good day? <laughs> well, <clears throat> That I mean, it's easy. I mean, if everybody's doing fine and I'm done, not expecting a phone call in the middle of the night, that makes it a good day for me. Um, you know, I try to leave everybody's room with somebody having a smile on their face. I know I, I come across as just serious all the time, but but I, you know, that's what I would prefer would happen was that when I leave somebody's room, then and they've had a smile on their face for whatever reason, some glib comment or what have you, then. And that, that's made it a good day for me. I'm going to make sure when I see you in the hallways <laughs> that I smile so you can go home okay. and say it's been a good day. Not that I matter, but anyway. J- Jimmy, when you were a patient, you wanted to know everything that was going on. Yes? Yep. And you still do. So we are going to let you take the reins for the last part of the podcast and put your surgeon in the hot seat for a little fun. All you right. game? I'm excited I'm about Dr. This. Wilson, you game? Sure. If you weren't a heart surgeon, what would you want to be? Well, first of all, I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player for all my early days. I started playing baseball really young. My dad took me out and we always, but, you know, I was small. And 
still had this dream. I played high school baseball, and then I went to uh, college, and they had this um, walk-on uh, sign-up day. So I just went to the, you know, where they were having it, and all around me were these guys that were at least six inches taller, fifty pounds heavier, and that sort of thing. And I thought, there is no way <laughs> that I could do this. You know, you you see some of the professional athletes of the time, and one of them for me was like Stan Musial. Mm. Stan Musial is not a big well, he's passed away now, but he's not a big guy. I thought, geez. He had over 300 home runs and 3,000 hits. Why couldn't I do that at 5'8", 130 pounds? Anyway, so that was what I wanted to be. If I weren't a doctor, I think I'd be a kindergarten teacher. Ooh, really? Oh, yes. Really? Because okay. that's an age where you could take those kids and kind of mold them to be whatever your vision might be be of them and have a big influence on these little kids. Are you so. not finding that with your own children at all? <laughs> you didn't need to bring that <laughs> Okay, I'll be quiet now. If you, got the, if you got the patience for heart surgery, though, then you'd probably have the patience for kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, sure. So th th that's probably what I would do, though. So I guess that answers my question. If you could play any professional sport, what would it be? It'd be baseball. No question. So what do you do to relax and chill out? I play the piano. All right. I, I try to do that. I can't do it every night because if my daughter's home, she doesn't like it when I play the piano. But uh, why, why is that? I play it too loud. Oh. <laughs> I really bang out. The, <laughs> she, she comes down and says, Dad, you're playing too loud. So anyway. Yeah. So, but I play the piano. I go out and play golf, as you know, every once in a while. What do you play on the piano? I'm curious now. Uh, I like to play Billy Joel. Oh. And I like classical music, certain classical music. My favorite composer is Rachmaninoff. A lot of banging in Rachmaninoff. Yeah. Yes. It's a very, it's like a lot of Russian composers. It's very loud and, yeah. I'm not going to be able to look at him in the same way. <laughs> it's okay. Um, do you have any rituals before you operate? Um, not really. No, I had a colleague um, years ago who, before every operation, he would go into the men's locker room and throw up. On purpose? I don't know. But that was <laughs> every morning. That's what he would do. And I, I thought it was just nerves or something. Hmm. But... um. Yeah, I don't have any specific thing apart from scrubbing my hands, of course. And that's an important one. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> we appreciate that. Hopefully he scrubbed afterward as well. Yeah. <laughs> so what music do you play during surgery? We don't play any music. It is quiet. Quiet. All right. You don't, uh, there's nothing going on. Zero. All it's doing, we're talking back and forth between... Me and the anesthesiologist and the perfusionist and the nursing staff, just whatever needs to be said. All right. So uh, however, I will say that when there are lapses and we're waiting for something or other to happen um, and there's nothing going on with the operation, we will pull up a crossword puzzle and work a crossword puzzle online. We can project the crossword puzzle on the screen in front of us and... Between everybody in the room, we'll work a crossword puzzle. I thought you were going to say karaoke or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> crossword. Okay. Okay. When you were in high school, what would have you won as an award? Like, most likely to. Hmm. I was pretty geeky in high school, so it would have been something along those lines. I did win this award, uh, athlete with the highest grade point average. Yeah. Honestly, there wasn't a lot of competition. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> exactly, right? So what did you learn from being in the Naval Reserves, and how has mm. it impacted your career? Definitely leadership. Leadership yeah. is just poured on you. Uh, I was an officer, and particularly for the officers, we get um, a leadership um, training at least once a year, 
um, were mandated to go to this program. Oh, I think it's every five years that lasts for a week or two. Uh, it's all based on leadership, and it's actually it's a very good course. You learn a lot, and that's that was probably the biggest thing that it, that it taught me. As I mentioned in my book, when Doctor Huddleston speaks, everyone listens. Being a father of four, did that hold true at home? Not so much, I wouldn't say. Um, I will say that my fourth child, my youngest daughter, it probably listens to me more than the other three. And that's in part because I've been able to spend more time at home uh, with her than I did with the other three. I was much, I, I was away a lot when I was. When... After I play a few years on the PGA Tour. Yes. I would someday like to be the president of Cardinal Glennon. Okay. What advice would you give me to achieve that goal? Well, you have to have a bit of business sense. Yeah. Um, because it is a business. We don't necessarily think of healthcare as a business, but it is, in fact. I mean, the hospital has to, I mean, this all costs money, and the hospital has to achieve a bottom line that works. So you have to have a bit of business sense about it. But the main focus has always got to be you're taking care of patients. The patients are your customers. It's just like running any business. You want to satisfy your customers. And in our case, our customers are the patients. So yeah. that has to be the foremost thing in your mind at all times. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. It's your turn. We're going to flip the switch. Okay. Now you get so, to ask him all the things. This is actually my main question, and that is that... Through this whole process, you've got had the opportunity to meet a lot of celebrities. Yeah. Can, can you just throw out a quick list of the ones that you've met? Um, Ozzy Smith. I met Ozzy Smith. That was really cool. I met a bunch at the RBC Heritage. Uh, John Rahm. Okay. Um, Tony Finau. Max Homer. You, you're gonna have to explain. To yeah, what people. what is the RBC Heritage? It's a uh, it's a PGA Tour. It's a golf event. So these yeah. are golfers. These are golfers. Yeah. Okay. yeah. John Rom, Tony Romo. Uh, Tony Romo was a former football player. Crap, not Tony Romo. Tony Finau. Tony Finau. I messed okay. up. Yeah. And then Max Homa. I met Max Homa, and Sahith Thagala, right? Yeah. And then my favorite is Matt Holiday. Matt Holiday, yes. Yeah. You've done commercials with Matt Holiday. Yeah. yeah. You're on television yourself, becoming a bit of celebrity in your own right. I guess, yeah. Well, how many other students in your high school have been on television? None. Yes. So what's been the reaction of your classmates to your celebrity status, if you will? Um... Normally they uh, joke around with me if I'm going and uh, hanging out with somebody, or if I'm if I'm at home, they'll always be like, "Oh, you got enough time for me? Oh, you're so famous, so you got enough time." And uh, so that it, it's always just a little bit of a joke. Um, but I guess it's just a lot of people. Everybody knows who I am. Like even all the seniors that they all know who I am, so um, yeah, and I, and I guess. But he doesn't tell a lot of people though no, about things. No, I, I don't. He, I don't. I don't. I guess he doesn't I don't brag. He doesn't it. brag or he doesn't tell. Well, a lot yeah, of people. but if they're watching a St. Louis Cardinals baseball game on television, <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna yeah. see you. Yeah, and and they always they always send me videos like, oh well, look who's on my TV screen now, <laughs> so. But I was wondering if there's been any, I wouldn't say resentment on some of your, on the part of some of your classmates, but perhaps they're thinking, oh, I wish I had had a heart transplant. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that <laughs> yeah. I would have met Matt yeah. Holiday. And, yeah, yeah. You should and, tell him, say, yeah, you and, go ahead and, and have and, a heart transplant. And, <laughs> and, I'll trade places with yeah. you. Yeah. A bunch of, I have a few like guys that play baseball, and I'm pretty good friends with them. And some will be like, well, I mean, you don't really play baseball, so meeting Matt Holiday isn't even that cool. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. So, so they do; they get pretty jealous sometimes about that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so 
you know, I recognize, like me, you had dreams of being an athlete. Yeah. But you had to have you have to have a plan B. Mm -hmm. Let's just imagine, however unlikely it might be, that you don't make it onto the PGA tour. Mm -hmm. What's the plan B? Well, I would. What I'd try to do is I'm gonna have to keep my grades up from high school and go to a pretty good four-year college which one tennessee okay yeah i i really want to go to tennessee and if the pga doesn't work out i would want to get my mba in hospital administration i don't know if they provide that class at tennessee they do, do it at what's belmont. The, belmont belmont they do and it at belmont it's a dry campus too which is a yeah. plus yeah <laughs> so keep you busy in the books yes Keep them away from, yeah, never mind. We'll go into that later on. Uh, I mean, seriously. So, yeah, I, I really want to get my degree in hospital administration and then uh, try to make my way up to be the president of Cardinal Glennon. Okay. We better tell Dr. Mirandy that now. Well, he already knows. <laughs> we've already talked oh, about it. Okay. Because well, Dr. Mirandy's a Tennessee fan, too. Yes, so. I know. We've, we've talked about it. I, yes. I, I said a pretty embarrassing thing to him one yes, time. Yes, he was I, like, I want to be the hospital I guy. I want to be a hospital guy. And I'm guy. like... Oh gosh! There's a name for that, Jimmy. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, it, it was a long day. Do you have any advice that you would give to any patient who is looking at or facing a heart transplant? I mean, we have kids in the hospital all the time, waiting. What advice would you give them? Um, I would say that you you can't. It's 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 kind of a harsh reality, but it's like you really you can't do anything to stop it. So you, what I would say this is it's almost like a marketing prop, <laughs> but you you have to create an attitude of grace, and um just let God let God do all the work and let God kind of run the show with you because obviously you you just have to be the patient. You just have to let everything happen. I'd say um, they know what's best for you, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't be fighting and screaming um, about needles and all that. Um, and I would just let God, let God really take control. Yeah. Suppose they made a movie about your book. Mm -hmm. Who would you like to play you in the movie? Oh, that's a good question. A good question. And who would you like to play your dad and your mom? And most importantly, who would you like to play me? I think we're going to have you on the podcast more often, Dr. Huddleston. Very strong it. question. I'm loving That's it. Great. Well, you can start with your mom. Mom. Uh, you better pick a good one. <laughs> no, you got, you're going home with me. Um, Roseanne. <laughs> I, I was coughing. I didn't say Roseanne. I cannot believe you just said that. Angelina oh. Jolie. Maybe. Here you go. I, I'm going to say... Oh, the only only people I know that are girls, uh, singers, your mom, you're going to be Rihanna. <laughs> Rihanna's your okay. mom. Okay. That might be a casting problem, but okay. The guy the guy is going to be uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. You're going to okay, be good. Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, you got a good one, James. Hey, yeah. Props that was for that. good. Are you serious? <laughs> Rihanna, Rihanna I, love, I love me some Rihanna, but I go with J-Lo before I go with Rihanna. Thank you. You're welcome. Who's J-Lo? What? Jennifer Jen Lopez. Jenny from Jennifer Lopez. Lopez. Yeah. Yeah. She's an actress. Oh no, you know who you're like? That she Kardashian girl. Because oh. <laughs> you just eh, you just nip. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of Kardashian girls. Uh, the mom, Kim. No, that's that's, the, that's it's Chris. one of the daughters. That's Okay, whichever whichever one the mom is because Chris? Oh no. It's a Not generational Chris. deal. Fifteen yeah. year olds don't even I, know the I give you better give her Kim instead. Yeah. Kim I think. Kim yeah. Kardashian. You no. haven't come up with who plays you yet? Uh nobody good enough. Okay, who's Dr. Huddleston? Who's Who's Dr. Huddleston? Huddleston, somebody very serious. <sighs> oh, I'd say George well. George Clooney has experience being in a hospital he show. Does. Yeah, because yeah. he's in the ER. Hey, hey, you know that one guy? The, the, this doesn't really make any sense, but he is kind of serious, and he, he's got, like, some funny humor. That guy off Equalizer. What's that guy's name? Denzel Washington? Yes. <laughs> you're you're going to be my doctor. Denzel Washington. I'm, I'm loving that. <laughs> well, I'm okay. Rihanna, and you're Denzel Washington. <laughs> <All right. laughs> he's Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
I want to watch this movie tomorrow. <laughs> I'm ready. Interesting. Oh um, my gosh. And me, I'll just say I'm. Uh, I want to be like a kid version of Kevin Hart. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's, He's the guy that yes. does the fan duel commercials, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Jimmy yeah, yeah. loves Kevin Hart. Love Kevin Hart. Loves him. I don't think Kevin. Kevin Hart could calm down enough to be I don't, you. I don't either. He, he kind of acts like a teenager, though. Yeah. 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 But I, I'm a teenager. I see that. I'm, I'm, that's, that's... Yeah. Well, this has been fun. I actually had one oh, more you, Oh, go. I'm so sorry. Okay, yes. This is actually for mom and dad. Yes. Um. You know this, and this is a serious question now. We had fun with the last one, but <clears throat> you know, while he's waiting for a heart transplant, um, and we feel this same way. On the one hand, you hope that there's going to be a donor soon. Mm-hmm. You're praying for a donor, which means that you are, in effect, praying for some other child mm-hmm. to die. Now. The way that I cope with that myself is that I don't have any control over that, and we're going to make the best of a situation. But I'm just wondering what your thoughts are as you were going through this whole process. And Shane, why don't you go first? Well, that was, we've been asked that question before. It was extremely difficult because we'd go home. I mean, we waited 103 days, correct? Um, we would go home and pray or and I would cry every single time, knowing that in order for him to get a heart, we knew exactly what was going to have to happen. So it was hell, basically, knowing exactly um, what that was, what was going to have to happen. Other, I mean, that's all I can say. Um, and you just have to basically know that God is in control of the whole situation, and there's nothing. It, nothing that you can do, um, but just have faith, and and um, no matter the, what the outcome is going to be, whether he's going to get a heart or whether he's not going to get a heart, because um, it could have definitely went the other way very easily. I tried to convince myself when I would pray, which you, in those in those days you almost live in a state of prayer. You know, you don't have to be quiet in a corner praying. You can be walking down the street. You know, every little sound, every ring of a phone. You're you know. So I would just pray for the the right outcome and and convinced myself I was never praying for a child to to die, right? So tried to block out what any of that situation would be and and you just pray for an outcome, knowing what the outcome for us was, that he would get a heart. So I just prayed every day for a, a good outcome and tried to not think about the transaction that right. leads leads to that. Well, yeah. you knew it was going to either end one way or the other, so you just prayed for. You also pray for strength to just get you through each day, and um, and that's that's mainly at the very end because you start losing hope because you know you waited for so long and you're like, I mean, they said that this perfect heart's going to come because Aaron would say, "We're just waiting for the perfect heart, waiting for the perfect heart," and you keep thinking, "When is this perfect heart coming?" And then you kind of start losing losing hope and then you know, then you just start you're you're uh, you're having faith but then you're also thinking I mean this could definitely go I mean he could die right here um and you just then you start praying just for for strength to get you through no matter what so but yeah and I feel like that's a theme that I've heard throughout this whole conversation is just a belief or an attitude or an mm-hmm. adoption of a thought that there's something at play that we are not in control you're of. You're not in control. And you're praying for what the right outcome is supposed mm-hmm. to be. Kind of like you said, when you pray before surgery or you're praying for families, it's not that you're necessarily praying that they get better because you don't know what the outcome is supposed to be you're just praying for what's right and praying for what's needed and mm-hmm. um, praying to get through yes. you know Excellent. the moment and mm-hmm. what you've been handed you know mm-hmm. well I want to thank all of you for your vulnerability and for sharing and um, it's been awesome 
um, I met you guys years ago <laughs> and, um, to see where you were and the place you were in then all of you and the place you're in now. And, um, it's awesome. Thank you. To see. We've gotten to know you guys over the, the past few years and it's been very special keeping up and seeing how, how, how you've grown Jimmy and how everything has progressed. And, um, and even, you know, seeing, seeing your, your attitude in the hospital early on and then how you've maintained that attitude now post-procedure in this next chapter of your life has been awesome to be a part of. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Glennon Factor. Make sure you follow The Glennon Factor and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Visit glennon.org if you would like to learn more about how you can support Cardinal Glennon Kids. And while you're there, feel free to share any feedback or episode suggestions on our podcast page. The Glennon Factor is recorded and produced by SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Foundation. Podcast land, you can't see Becca, but our co-producer over here, she is fighting off a sneeze so <laughs> bad. God bless her. I'm not the co-producer. I'm just well, you are now. behind the scenes. <laughs>